Good morning, everyone. As we turn to hear from God's word this morning, we seek to receive it with reverence and humility. The summons to the word found in your bulletin helps us do just that. Let's read it together. Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. Broad is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Our first scripture reading this morning is taken from Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 20. In the Blue Pew Bible, it can be found on page 1015. Again, the text is Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 20, found on pages 1015. It reads, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of, sin, of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him... All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Our, sec our second scripture reading comes from Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, found on pages uh, 1013 of the Pew Bible. Again, the text is Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 8 found on page 1013. It reads, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Thank you, Dakota. Let's uh, begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for the riches, the um, the beauty, the um, insight of your word. We thank you for how it gives life, how it gives hope, how it sheds light into the darkness of our souls, the darkness of our cities. Uh, Father, the darkness that uh, seems uh, to pervade, and yet uh, your word is uh, unfailing. Jesus, you have said, um, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. I, who talks like that? Uh, and yet, Jesus, here we are 2,000 years later, and your, your followers are, are in almost every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. You are extending your kingdom, and we ask that you would do that here right now this morning. We pray that you would subdue our hearts, that you'd rescue us all over again, and that you would lead us in the way of life. 
Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we pray in Jesus' mighty and merciful name. Amen. Well, I can remember as a kid, I had the privilege of, uh, of going overseas a number of different times in junior high and high school. I went with a, a grandfather figure of mine, and uh, on one particular trip that I went in, and I may have told this story before, but on one particular trip that I went in, I was in Greece, and uh, I was, we were on a tour, and I think it was a five, six, seven day tour around there, but we had gone around most of the major uh, tourist attractions of Greece, and we were, I think we were, uh, the, the climax was uh, in Athens, as you can imagine why that would be the, the climax of a tour in Greece. And, uh, and it was an international tour, so it wasn't just the uh, uh, us Americans, so to speak. It was persons from different parts of Europe and elsewhere. And uh, we got to know each other through the week, dining together, etc. And uh, we came to the last day, and we were in there at the Parthenon uh, in Athens, so just a majestic... Um, uh, a piece of architecture, one of the great wonders of the ancient world. And uh, toward the end of the, of the tour, the, the tour guide asked the question, she said, does anyone have any questions about this past week or, or about Athens or the Parthenon or whatever? And one particular American woman uh, raised her hand and she said, she had a rather confused look on her face. And you could tell this had been on her mind for a while. She said, why did the Greeks build so many ruins? And there was sort of, and as an American, I just kind of wanted to just sort of, just, you know, just sort of slouch away. Um, and of course, the tour guide explained that the Greeks didn't build ruins, that they were ruins. And, but, but this, you can kind of see where the, where is the lady coming from? I mean, she's been in Greece a week, and all she's ever seen are what? Ruins. That's all she's ever known. For her, that's Greece. That's just life. It's just normal. And on the one hand, it, didn't, it, didn't, it didn't, didn't sit right with her, right? Something's not right about these ruins, <laughs> right? It's just not right about it. And yet, that's all she ever knew. Now, I don't know about you, but maybe think about your childhood experience. We, we come into this world. Life is it's a difficult place, isn't it? The world, you could say, as, as glorious as it is, as amazing as, as beautiful as it is, it's a lot of ruins, isn't there? As a kid, I can remember thinking about how, uh, about how my surroundings were, were in a sense like that. There was something wrong with the world. I can remember this very silly, but as a kid, we had a garden. My job every Saturday morning was to go out and remove the weeds from the garden. I hated doing that. I despised, and I couldn't figure out why in the world these weeds kept showing up. It didn't make sense. It wasn't right. I mean, we wanted to plant carrots, tomatoes, you name it. They were all, that's what we had planted, these weeds. Something wasn't right. I remember thinking, my little seven, eight-year-old self, thinking, this is not how it's supposed to be. It's not how it's supposed to work. Why are these weeds here every single Saturday morning? Why do they have to be in our garden? Of course, it wasn't just nature. It wasn't just my surroundings. It was my society. I mean, even as a kid, my hometown was a very safe place to live. It was a great place to raise a family, Billings, Montana. 
But the city was located along a major highway. I was I-94, I think that's what it is, I-90, I-90, I can't remember, I-90. And on that highway, there was some, uh, some significant uh, drug trafficking. And often they would stop in buildings or something overnight, and there would be some sort of violence, some sort of homicide or something like that. And as a kid, I remember hearing about this on the news, and you'd think, what, what is it with drugs? I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me. I can remember thinking, hearing about, like, who would do drugs and why would they do them and why would they be selling drugs? There was nothing seemed good about it. That doesn't make sense. That's not at all how it's supposed to be. That's not how things are supposed to work. It was the same. I can remember as a uh, boy, 13 or 14, I would remember on the news, they were covering the L.A. riots. Remember that? Rodney King and all that transpired with the... With the uh, uh, the trial with the officers, etc., and I can remember thinking about it was my first exposure. I mean, I'm in Montana growing up. We there were the indigenous persons, that, that the Native Americans that we that we saw, saw on occasion. For the most part, we grew up it was all white, and we just didn't. We heard about this thing, and I why wouldn't people like black people? I don't understand. It didn't make didn't make sense to me. I thought something's not right about this. This is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way it's supposed to work. But it wasn't just my surroundings, as in the garden. It wasn't just the nature around me. It wasn't just my society. There was something about myself, even as a kid, that I knew wasn't right. There were moments, and kids, I don't know if you can relate to this, but there were moments when I look, I would think to myself, you know, Bruce, all you care about is yourself. You're so selfish. I can remember one time when I wanted to buy a toy. I think it was a G.I. Joe figure or something like that, and I didn't have the money. So you know what I did? I snuck into my sister's room and stole some of her money so I could buy my toy. And I can remember after that just feeling, I went through with it. I went, bought the toy and whatever. I just remember feeling terrible about myself. Thinking to myself, Bruce, you are not who you are supposed to be. You're not right. That's not how you're supposed to act. And where does that come from? Where does this sense as a little kid that you're like, my surroundings, there's something wrong with this garden. <laughs> not how it's supposed to be. There's something wrong with my city. There's something wrong with my nation. There's something wrong with my society. And perhaps most disturbing in all, there's something wrong with me. And I don't really want to talk about it. I don't really want to deal with it, but I know deep down something's not right. Where does that come from? The sense that, again, my surroundings, my society, myself, they weren't how things were supposed to be. Was it, to be, was it that sense of, hey, this is not right? Was it to be followed? Was I supposed to pay attention to it? Or is it something to be just forgotten, brushed aside? Is it something that I should be very sensitive to? Or is it something that I should just squash? And just put under. Should it be embraced or ignored? And as I got older, there was a temptation to ignore it, to forget about it, and to just accept, accept things as they are. What is normal is normative. Right? What I experience, that's what's ethical. That's just life. So when it comes to my surroundings or my society, I just came to say, as I got older, I just came to say, well, that's just how things are. It's just how the world works. 
That's life in 21st century America. And you just conform. You just conform. You get used to that's the standard. That's, that's what, what matters in life. Looks, wealth, education. Got to get ahead. You just, you just go with the flow. And when it comes to myself, I can so easily come to say, ah, it's just who I am. It's just me. Those flaws aren't flaws. It's just who I am. It's just me expressing myself. That's me identifying as I want to identify. That's just me. And I give in to the norm, to give in to the status quo. I give in to just that's how things are. You know, gang, one of life's biggest decisions has to do with responding to that childhood sense that things aren't right, that they're not how they're supposed to be. So that when it comes to my surroundings, my society, and myself, and I have this sense that, you know what, things aren't right, the question that's so key for all of us to ask is, will I pay attention to it, or will I push it aside? How have you answered that question in your life? How should you answer that question? How should we answer that question and why? In fact, it's one of the major issues that we see in our culture today, dialogue and discussion, is who I am and myself and who I want to be and my, how I identify. Is that to be sacred? Is it true that Today, faithfulness, what what it means to be true, what it means to be faithful, is to be true to myself, to do what I want to do, to do what I feel is right for me. It's one of life's big, big questions, one of our culture's big questions. And again, it's what we'll talk about what does it look like to answer, to, to wrestle with that idea. Now, here's how Jesus would answer that. This is really important. How would Jesus respond to this question of, okay, I have this sense that things aren't right with me, with myself, with my society, my surroundings. I have this sense that this this is not how it's supposed to be. We're like that woman who just raises her hand and says, you know what, something's not right here. Why in the world would they build so many ruins for? This just doesn't make sense, right? And this is how Jesus would answer. Turn with me to Matthew. Matthew chapter 13, excuse me, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. I hope these words are actually a little familiar that I'm about to read to you. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. It's on page 832 of your pew Bible if you want to follow along. What does Jesus say about our society? Can we trust Can we accept our society as it is? Can we say, you know what? That's just how things are, and that's how we should roll. That's the way we should live. This is how you do things in 21st century America. Just fall, just go with the flow. Jesus says this, chapter 10, Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, we just did that for our uh, summons to the word, didn't we? Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. What's Jesus saying about the path to destruction? Most of society is going there. That's Jesus' contention. That's what he says. He says what's normal in our world today, regardless of its ancient first century Jewish culture, 
or 21st century American culture, most of the time, the crowd is going the wrong way. I mean, is that too surprising? I mean, I don't know if that needs elaboration or not. And yet, the temptation to go with the flow, to keep up with the Joneses, to go with Dr. Phil, to go with Oprah, to go with whomever the radio talk show host is du jour, it's so great. We just go along with it. It's just in the air we breathe, and we just follow along like lemmings. Kids, if you don't know what lemmings are, at least what they're reputed to be, ask your parents after the service, okay? We, but we just go along. Jesus says, look, you, the last thing you want to do is be a lemming. In fact, it's amazing. Just recently, there was, I forget the professor's name, but it was a professor at, uh, I want to say, Yale or Princeton, one of the Ivy League schools, and he had retired. And so he had been talking 30 years, 30 plus years of teaching in an Ivy League institution. And he, uh, he wrote a book called Excellent Sheep. Can you guess what the book's about? It's about, he's about, it's about how the best of the best in our higher education uh, world of higher education institutions, how they are like sheep. Sharp, brilliant, and yet just lemmings do exactly what they're told, and just follow along, right? Just go with the flow. And Jesus is saying that in society, Jesus is saying on the whole, society will lead us astray. What is currently common, what is conventional, will sooner or later lead to catastrophe. Society must not be the standard. So who will? Right? We want to build our lives in a way that they work as they're supposed to, as they're designed. What are we to do? Christian, where is he calling you to simply obey him? To simply leave the crowd and go and follow Jesus? Now listen, Jesus not only speaks to how unreliable our society is for following, that we, we should listen to that voice of, hey, things are not right with my society. This is wrong. This is not how it's supposed to be. Jesus says, yes, that's exactly right. It's not how it's supposed to be. Let me tell you. But what about myself? What does Jesus say about myself? Well, turn to the right, turn to Matthew 18. Matthew chapter 18. Verse 8, this is on page 844. Matthew 18. Now, what's so amazing about this, this context of what Jesus is about to say here is it comes in the context of caring for the vulnerable. Look at verse 6. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, that is, if he causes them to sin in some way, if you cause them to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their, uh, hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Whoa! That's one of the strongest statements that Jesus ever makes. He says, listen, you have these little ones around you, the vulnerable around you. And if you take advantage of them, if you don't care for them, if you don't look out for them, this is what's going to happen to you. And then he says, what does that look like? He says, listen, verse 7, woe to the world because of, uh, because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. Now listen to this, verse 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. 
It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. Jesus is saying that there are aspects of you and me, a hand or a foot, he's speaking metaphorically. He's saying there are aspects that are parts of you and me. Listen to this. Why does he use the language of hand or foot or in the next verse, eye? Why does he use that language for? How long have you had your hand? How long have you had your eye, your foot? You know, ever since you came out, right? I mean, ever since you got here. There are things that, and, and how important is your hand? Especially in a manual labor culture. This is agriculture. We're not talking like, this is not just IT culture where you can, you know, it's not a culture that has in any way um, uh, uh, suited for or, or um, any way easy on or helpful to those who are disabled in any way, shape, or form. You lose your hand, you're going to be begging, you're going to be a beggar the rest of your life. You lose an eye, maybe something similar. So Jesus is talking about aspects of us that, we can, that have always been there, since we can remember, that are actually very important to our survival. And he's saying, guess what? They got to go. There are aspects of you and me that feel so natural, that feel so normal. And Jesus is saying that voice inside you that is saying, you know what, something's not right about me. This is not, not how I'm supposed to be. He says, listen to that voice. Listen to that voice. Is that you? Is that what it means for you to be a follower of Jesus? And so what's so beautiful is that, again, that what's the context here? Jesus is saying is if you don't want to take advantage of others, if you don't want to take advantage of the vulnerable, what do you need to do? Work on your self. You see that? The most loving thing I can do for my spouse is to regularly be working on myself. The most thing that I can, best thing I can do as a father, as a mother, is to be working daily on my failing, failing forward, struggling, confessing, getting help doing whatever it takes, but refusing to surrender, to simply go with the flow, and that's just who I am. There is a world of difference between living with someone who is struggling with something and regularly failing at it, confessing, owning it, getting help, still failing, gets discouraged, gets distressed, gets deeply, even at the point of despair, wrestling with something in their life. There's a world of difference between living with that and living with someone who absolutely refuses to acknowledge they have any issues whatsoever. It's almost intolerable. In fact, it's a form of living hell. And Jesus says, time out. If at some point you won't actually acknowledge the hand or the eye, the foot that needs to be cut off, if you refuse to take radical action, if you refuse to change at all, at some point, you're done. And he uses the word, where are they going? What does he say? It's not my words. What does he say? It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal 
fire. Now, where am I all going with all of this? This is so important. Okay, so Jesus says, I understand that Jesus says, though my society can't set the standard, nor can the self set the standard. That I need to be listening to this sense that, you know what, things are not right. Man, where are all, where, what is the deal with all these ruins? Why is, why, why is my society so messed up? Why, is, why am I so messed up? I need to do something about it. Jesus says, yes, that's right. And the reason for it is not that just Jesus is getting on you. He's not there to be critical. He's not there to throw stones. He wants, you listen to this. He wants to return you to the glory of what Greece used to be. See, the Bible has this story. It's a story, very simple. In the opening chapters of Genesis, you have this picture of Greece in all its glory. But it's not Greece. It's not Athens. It's what? It's a garden. And it's Adam and Eve. It's a world that is exactly how God intended it. And then you have this fall, this departure, this loss. Everything falls into ruins. It cascades in this catastrophe of the world as we know it. And we all awaken into a world where we go, man, something's not right about this place. This is not how it's supposed to be. I don't care what your walk of life is. I don't care how religious you are, how irreligious you are. Every one of us looks around and goes, you know what? This is not how it's supposed to be. And we may disagree about that in some ways, about what's, what's right or what's not right or how it should be or something like that. That's where most of the political discussions and all the cultural conversation go, go just so strong. We're disagreeing about where things should go and what's wrong and how it's supposed to be. But we're all, every single one of us is saying this is not how it's supposed to be. And when we say that, listen to this, this is so important. When we admit and we say, listen, this is not how it's supposed to be. This is not how it's designed. What does that imply? It implies a designer. Are you with me? When I say, when she says, wait, what's with all the ruins? She's assuming the existence of whom? The Greeks. And when you and I look around the world and go, man, something's not right. I look inside, I look in the mirror and I go, whoa, this is not right. We're admitting that there is a way that things are supposed to be. That was designed differently, to be different than I am. And that there's a designer. And so if I can't follow society, if I can't follow myself, who are we to follow? Well, Jesus, you know what Jesus is going to say, right? I mean, the guy's so arrogant. Let's, let's turn back to Matthew chapter 7. Turn back to Matthew chapter 7. So powerful. Listen, I just, I, I know it's so easy we get used to Jesus' words, but what he says here is just so radical. Chapter 7, it's on page 833 of your pew Bible. So just to understand the flow of thought in chapter 7, we just read verses 13 and 14, right? Jesus says, don't follow the crowds. And then the next, second, the next section in verse 15 through, uh, through 20 there, you see in the bottom of 832, he says, don't follow cool preachers. He does. He says that. He's talking about false prophets. He says, don't follow the crowds. Don't follow the cool preachers. And then next he says, don't even follow your own conscience. Look in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Just because you profess faith, just because you've confessed, just because you've, you know, you, you, you've gone through the motions, don't even rely on that. Don't think that you can 
uh, trust yourself and how you think about these things. No, it's not about a crowd. It's not about cool preachers. It's not about my own conscience. It's not about my own, you know, yeah, I, I, conf- you know, I confessed my sin at band camp one year. I don't know. I mean, whatever it is. Jesus says, it's those who do the will of my Father. It's so powerful. I love me just read it because it's so good. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me, this is a terrifying verse. So when you actually, when you actually stop, time out. When you actually stop and read the Gospels, Jesus is just not who you think he is. He's just not. Listen to what he says here. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will say to them plainly, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. This assumption that somehow, oh, I'm good, I'm in. You know, I'm, 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 I'm fine. I do my thing, I do my religious thing, or whatever, and I'm good. Jesus says, there are going to be, so, how many people are going to say that? Verse 22, verse, the first word? Many will say to me on that day. So we can't trust self, we can't trust society. Look at verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Jesus says that we want to build our lives in a way that they work as designed, like a house, right? Like a house that withstands a storm. I don't know about you, but recently there have been some pretty significant storms that have come through. There was a you know, a pretty significant thunderstorm that came through, and and the the wind was just beating against the, the west side of our house. And not once was I going, man, I don't know if this is going to, this is, you know, if we're going to, the house is going to fall over. I just knew. You just, you just knew. I was like, okay, we're good. You kind of hear it. I'm like, oh, that kind of surprises you, but it doesn't actually concern you because you're so convinced that the house is built well. Jesus is saying, if you want your house, your life to be built well, you have absolutely, would 100% got to listen and put into practice the things that he says. And then he says, but if you don't want to listen to me, go listen to someone else and it'll probably work out. He doesn't say that. He has the nerve, the exclusivity. This is why they, that's why they murdered him. Okay, he's like, listen, if you don't follow me, you're going down. It's an amazing thing, but Jesus' words, but just in Jesus is not saying that to be anal, to be exclusive, to be, Whatever, he's saying it because he knows the way to build your life in a way that leads to peace. Okay? If I've been wondering, I thought it was a sermon about peace. Let me tell you where peace is biblically. Peace is when things work like they're supposed to. So the Bible defines peace. 
And there's other ways of talking about that inner serenity or that sense of calm. That's, that's, that's meaningful and good. But when the Bible talks about peace, it's talking about things working like they're supposed to. Does it make sense? It's the, the woman sees the ruin and she goes, man, she's not, no, there's, no, she's, there's no peace here. It's when things flourish, it's when they function like they're supposed to. Right? It's when you, t- you get your car in a, a wreck of some sort and you take it to the auto body and they, they just fix the whole thing. And you drive out and it's like it's new again. That's peace. It's when the world, it's when society, it's when my surroundings, it's when myself, I work like they're supposed to. And Jesus is saying, if you long for peace, if you long for you to be who God made you to be, if you long to be like that, uh, that BMW on the Autobahn, follow me. Come after me. And, you may, and, and what's so amazing is that Jesus can talk like that. In fact, look at, look at the next ver- ver- few verses there. Look what he says here. It's so awesome. Verse 28. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, the crowds were what? They're amazed. They're astonished. They're not like, oh yeah, it's just Jesus. That's just how he talks. No, they're blown away because no one talks like that. Verse 29, because he's, he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. The teachers of the law would say like, they would, they would, they would be like, hey, you know, prophet so-and-so says this. They, they, the, the teachers of the law taught like I, they preach like I do. Because I don't sit there and go, I tell you the truth. Right? I, I say, well, Matthew says this, or Jeremiah says this. Right? I rely on authorities outside of me. But here's Jesus showing up, and he's this 30-year-old, 31-year-old guy, single guy with no formal education, no part of the formal structure of the religious authority, and he's just saying, this is how it is. It's almost, I mean, he goes around just talking about the world with such a confidence, which is a cockiness, and it's almost as if he helped, almost as if, it's almost like he helped make the world. It's almost as if he helped design it. Oh, wait, what did Dakota read for you earlier? Let's turn there just real fast. We're getting close. We're about to land the plane here. All right, let's turn to Colossians real quick. So beautiful, these words that, uh, that, that Dakota read for us. They're a little, they're, they're a little, uh, they're a little um, enigmatic. I'll explain them to you real quick here. Chapter 1, verse 13 I had uh, Dakota kind of cut into the middle of the paragraph. I didn't want to go back any further. Verse 13, again, this is page uh, 1015, 1015. It says this, For he, that is the Father, our Heavenly Father, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Now, I don't know what darkness means to you, but darkness is this general notion of a place or of, of, of that which does not lead to life. If you're going to grow a garden, guess what you need? Light, right? So a darkness is a place of death. It's a place of no flourishing, of no peace. And it's not just a place of death. It's also, what, what can you see in the darkness, kids? Nothing. It's a place of deception. It's a place of no truth. And he's saying that the Father has delivered us from a self and a society that is all dark. 
that will not lead to flourishing, that will not lead to peace. And he says he has transferred you from that dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then he goes on to explain who is this Son in the kingdom that he has. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Look at what he says in verse 16. For in him, we could say through him, for through him all things were created. How about that? He helped create the world. He designed it. When we listen to Jesus, when we obey him, as counterintuitive, as countercultural as it may be, every bone in our body is thinking, that is so constraining, it's so dumb. It's, it's going to just, it doesn't make any sense. It's way too demanding. It's way too simplistic. It's too black and white. I can't do that. It's more complicated than that, Jesus. When we are thinking like that, we're talking to the one who designed us, who made us. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he's saying, that eye, that ear, that foot, whatever, it needs to go. Okay? He's saying, follow me. You mean, and whatever it meant, and he's just, I mean, Matthew 7 is the climax of three chapters of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is showing us how to live a life that will lead to peace, that will lead to flourishing. And then he goes on here. So he speaks in verse 16 that how in, through him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, anything that may threaten us, any of these, I, these realities that are bigger than we are, whether seen or unseen, he has created all of them. And because he's created all of them, he is Lord over all of them. And we need not fear them at all. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is mysteriously at the center of the cosmos. And he's the head of the church, verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in him, and, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. He's saying that, that Jesus is Adam 2.0. He is the firstborn from the dead. He has conquered sin and death and evil and the evil one. And he will bring about peace. He will see all things restored. Verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fellows dwell in him, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So not only is he the designer, when things have gotten so broke, so messed up, so corrupt, he is the one who can fix, who can restore, who can redeem. And it begins at the cross where he reconciles you and me to his heavenly father. Let me just, let me just uh, close with this, uh, with this uh, very, pra- and very practically. Just to the left, or literally on the, the, the next page here, is Philippians. It's the other, the other section that... Um, that uh, Dakota read for us. And I want to just refer to, because he speaks of peace here. He says here in verse 6 on page 1013, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus.
He looks at society and you think, man, this is so wrong. It's not right at all. This is not how it's supposed to be. We look at ourselves. I get so discouraged. Why can't I change? Why can't I grow? And Paul exhorts us. When we give into anxiety, or we give these things to him in prayer, every day, Father, I can't control what's going on in this world. I can't control my marriage. I can't control my kids. I'm coming to you in prayer. I'm giving them to you. And I'm asking that you would give me your Holy Spirit to, to believe that you are restoring all things. That you have not given up on me. That you have not given up on this world. And would you today give me the power to, to obey you. Help me to believe that you know what you're doing, that you've got a plan, and in that plan, you will find peace. Does that make sense? Very simple. And finally, he says, I love this, verse 8, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. I don't know about you, I can, get, I can just get so focused and fixated on what is wrong with this world. What is wrong with me? What is wrong with this church? What is wrong with all of you? I just focus on all that, what's, what's wrong. And Paul says to do just the opposite. Make a list of what is beautiful in your life. I love, I love that he just goes on. No, what is noble, what is pure, what is right, what is lovely. What is, this, these are the things to focus on. You're on your commute back and forth from work and you focus on these things. And then he says, verse 9, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Causing the imitation of him through his sufferings and struggles. Let's pray together.